0: If you will, please, turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. We're going to read through all 25 verses quickly. I'm not going to take a lot of time. Just reading through it, and then we'll talk about it. Isaiah 22, all 25 verses. I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. The Oracle Concerning the Valley of Vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you were found. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen. And Ker uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots. And the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many and you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planted long ago. In that day the Lord God of hosts calls, called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shephna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height, and carve a dwelling for yourself of the rock, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O strong man." He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. And there you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station, and in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open, and I will fasten him like a peg. In a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue and every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons and in that day declares the Lord of hosts the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken Hard words. Especially since I haven't a clue what they mean. See, these were written thousands of years ago. And they were written prophetically. So what was Isaiah referring to? Those of us living in the 21st century, we don't got a clue. We don't got a clue. But, thank God, God has raised up men and women to be scholars, to be theologians who have studied God's word and are students of history and world history and archaeology. And the end result is we live in a very blessed time because pooling all of that research that has been done, we now can get a better and clearer understanding of what all this was. I've spent the last 24 hours looking at this And this is what I've learned, and I want to share with you. First of all, if you look in verses 1 and 5 of this chapter, you will see an expression called the valley of vision. And I really struggled with that. I was like, what in the world is that supposed to be, the valley of vision? Well, if you were to turn, and don't do it now, but if you were to turn to Psalm 125, you would see written, as the psalmist is praising God, he says, the mountains surround Jerusalem. Well, I was always taught that when people went to Jerusalem for the three holy feasts of the year, that they went up to Jerusalem. So, how in the world is Jerusalem, who this, this oracle is about, the city of Jerusalem, how is it a valley of vision? Because scholars say the valley of vision is Jerusalem. Psalm 2125 says that there are mountains surrounding Jerusalem. So think about it, if you will, like this okay? The land of Israel is down near sea level. The Dead Sea is actually lower than sea level. When you come up towards Jerusalem, you're coming up and you have to go into mountains. And then you go through the pass into a little valley and then back up into Jerusalem onto Mount Moriah. Okay? So it's like a series of mountains and hills, but it's higher than the rest of the nation of Israel, but it's still within a valley between all of these mountains that surround Jerusalem. So there's this idea of a valley where God raises up prophets and gives vision because this is the center of of all the worship of the Lord God, Jerusalem, the city of David. And so we know, as we're reading this now, that this oracle, verse 1 says, this oracle concerns the valley of vision. So now we know that whatever is being said, is being said to the people who live in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is also the capital city of the nation of Judah, which is the remaining faithful group of people who are following Jehovah, the Lord God. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit to just give us a better understanding, and then I'll wrap this all up. So if you'll now look at verse 6 in Isaiah 22, you're going to see a name called Elam, E-L-A-M, and another name called Kerr, K-I-R. What in the world or who in the world is Elam and Kerr? Well, unfortunately, I don't have the map that I had last week. I forgot to bring it up on the screen for us. Or I could have shown it to you. But if you'll remember from last week, we talked about Babylon Being along the Euphrates River and the Tigris, between the Euphrates and the Tigris River, and then southeast of that was Media and Persia. Elam is in that area, southeast of Babylon. Kerr, no one really knows where it was. They're not sure if it was a city within Elam or if it was a region. Or a state, there's just no archaeological evidence to tell us what this place was. But scholars understand that this was a place called Elam and Kerr. and they believe that the, the scholars believe that these groups of people had aligned themselves with the Assyrians who were attacking Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah. So what Paul, what what uh, Isaiah say is that. The Elamites and the people of Ker came with their quiver and their chariots and their horsemen against you. Okay? Now, let's move down to verses 15 through 25. And we see two specific names that God has called out. One is Shebna, S-H-E-B-N-A. The other one is Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Is that his name? And Shebna and Eliakim are leaders in the nation of Israel during the time of King Hezekiah. If you you don't have to turn, but if you for your notes to look at later, if you go to 2 Kings verse, chapter 18, verse 18, 2 Kings 1818, you will find a story that we've already looked at in weeks past. And what this is, just about, just to remind you, is the king of Assyria had sent the army into Judea and they surrounded Jerusalem. And in chapter 18 of 2 Kings, it says, the Rabshakeh of the king of Assyria, who we understand to be one of the high generals of the army, uh, came to this specific spot just outside of Jerusalem. If I remember, it was called the Washerman's Field. And it said that Shebna, who was the prime minister under the king or the, the speaker of the house for our vernacular or the vizier, if you're thinking about Middle Eastern culture, the person who was just under the king was Shebna in the government of Jerusalem. And the person who was under Shebna was Eliakim. He was the one who was over the household of the king. So Shebna ran the government for the king. Eliakim ran all of the house and all of the properties. Scholars, Archaeologists have found... Piles and piles of broken pottery in Jerusalem area and and surrounding areas as well. And on those potteries there are seals that have Eliakim's name on it. And so apparently Eliakim was responsible for the transporting and for for the administration of all of the distribution of food and oil and grain and spices to all of the people from the household of the king. So these are two big wigs in the nation of, Jerusalem, of Judea, capital city, Jerusalem. They are part of the, the court, if you will, of the king of Israel, the king of, Ju, of Judah, excuse me, King Hezekiah. And what is being said to Shephna and Eliakim? In verses 15 to 20 of Isaiah 22, The prophet, speaking from God, is saying to Shebna, "Who do you think you are?" Oh, cool. Craig was able to bring that slide up. See where it says Elam, right down there. Going back to Elam and Ker, that was this. This is the Persian Gulf, the blue, where it says Kuwait and Kuwait City. Just north of that was the area of Elam. Okay, for those of you that are, that it works good for you to have a visual. So these are people that align themselves with the Babylonians and with the Assyrians to come against Judah. And uh, Jerusalem is way over here close to the Mediterranean. You see where the big word Canaan is and just below that You see Jericho and then Jerusalem. So Shebna was basically the number two guy in the government under King Hezekiah. And Shebna is getting called down by by God through the prophet Isaiah. And basically what God is saying to Shebna is, Who do you think you are? Mr. High and Mighty, you're establishing a name for yourself by having a private tomb carved out of the mountains surrounding Jerusalem? Really? Well, let me tell you, buddy, what's going to happen to you. It literally says... I'm going to have the king of Assyria come in and he's going to pick you up and swing you around like in a sling and throw you like a ball and you're going to go through, through the wide expanse and bounce and bounce and bounce and you're going to end up so far away from Jerusalem and you will never see it again and you will die there. That's what the word of God is for you, Mr. Shepna. And until just recently, there was just a word of prophecy that we could never prove. But just recently, in the last 50 or so years, archaeologists have found a tomb just outside of Jerusalem, in the hills. And the inscription on the wall says, to the the person who was second in the government. It doesn't say the name Shebna, but it says the title of the person who held that office. And they are convinced that this is the tomb that Isaiah is referring to. In chapter 22. To me that's just cool. That's just verification. That what God's word says is so. Here this guy thought he was all that in a bag of chips. And he ended up trying to raise himself up. And be high and mighty. And literally only kings were supposed to have private tombs. And God said I'm going to knock you down so far. You're, you're gonna knock, your head's going to be spinning. And not only that. I'm going to raise Eliakim up, because he's a man of honor. He's a man who's been trusted. He's a man that everyone looks to and says that he's a, a, a trustworthy guy. And that's talking about verses, those last verses in Isaiah chapter 22, talking about that peg and the flagons and the bowls. That's all talking about Eliakim. Back then, when they wanted to hang a shelf on a wall, they would drive a wooden peg down into the wooden uprights and then put another one on another upright, and then put a shelf across it, and it was solid. It didn't go anywhere. And that's what he's talking about here. This is a solid guy that you can trust, and you can put all of your hope in. But the reality is, even he, even he is going to fall. That peg is going to come loose, and everything that you trusted him with, everything you placed on him, is going to come crashing down and smashing to smithereens. Why? This is why. And now we have to move back in chapter 22. If you'll go with me in chapter 22. Uh, It's almost the whole chapter. It's kind of hard to do it. Let's see. What's the easiest place to go? Okay, look at verse 8. No, we have to go back even. Yeah, verse 8. He, God, has taken away the covering of of Judah. God's protection has been taken away. In the day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. What is the house of the forest? Does anybody have a note in your Bible? Or does anybody have any study or understanding of what that was? I'll give you a chance. If not, I'll tell you. I think I read it was um, uh, the armory. They they used the cedars of Lebanon in building the temple. And they actually, didn't they actually store weapons accessible to the temple? It was accessible to the temple, not part of the complex. You're close. Anybody else? Exactly. The, The house of the forest was the palace built by King Solomon, which exceeded the glory of the temple. His own house was greater and more glorious than the temple, and in the house, of, in the house of, of the palace of Solomon, this house of the forest was an armory where there were. It's named that there's over three hundred shields, and there's this, and there's that, and there's all of this stuff, and that's where they kept that stuff. So Isaiah is saying, in that day, verse eight. You looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw the breaches in the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall, and you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. And what, what are they talking about here? Well, Hezekiah is famous archaeologically for having dug a seven, I mean, 1100 foot, Tunnel underground through granite from a spring which was outside of Jerusalem, bringing it down into the city, and it dumped into what is now known as the Pool of Siloam. Go ahead. Exactly. Exactly. Without sonar, without the ability to ping on each other, they literally started each end and dug, and met in the middle. But the, bottom, the, the the truth of this is is that Hezekiah was an incredibly gifted stat- strategizer. I don't know what the proper word would be for that. Strategist. Strategist, that's a good term. Okay, strategist, thank you. He was able to see the need and put together a plan to protect his people. They literally saw where the weaknesses were in the wall and they tore down buildings within the city to use as materials to fortify the walls. They dug this tunnel to make sure that the enemy didn't have access to the water, but they had access to the water and it was within the walls of the city. Literally, (coughs) the walls of the city were twofold with space in between, known as the dead man's land. The dead zone, and they flooded that with water for two reasons to make it more difficult for the enemy to get in, but also to be a separate, a second. Source of water for them during a siege. So Hezekiah did this incredible strategy preparing for war. They did, they did the, the tunnel to bring the water. They fortified the walls. They provided extra water sources. They had all of this going for them. And Eliakim is bringing together all of the stores to make sure that everything's there. And uh, Shebna is making sure that the administration is going on to take care of everything while the enemy is starting to encroach upon them. And what happens in Hezekiah, I mean, in 2 Kings chapter 8. 18 and 19, we see the Rabshakeh come to the Jerusalem area, the Washington field, and pronounce this great announcement of doom to all of the people of Jerusalem and Judea. And when Shepna and Eliakim come back into the king and say, O king, this is what he's presented to us, the very first thing, if you look at 2 Kings 19, the very first thing that Hezekiah does is he gets. The letter that's been presented to him, he gets on his face in the temple and he pours his heart out to God and he says, Oh God, this is your problem. What are we going to do? See, his heart was right before the Lord. But go back to Isaiah 22. Because look what it says now. You've done all these things. Fixed the breaches. Brought in the water. Gone to the house of the forest to get your weapons. Made a reservoir. But look at what it says. This is at the end of verse 11. But you did not look to him who did it. Or see him who planned it long ago. And they're talking there. The prophet over there is saying, You didn't look to God. You put together all your plans. You got all of your strategies together. You, you brought up all your resources. You spilled up your storehouses. You put up barricades and defenses. But you totally forgot to come to God. And isn't he the one that you need to worry about? And in verse 12 and 13 it says, The Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning and baldness and wearing sackcloth. What is baldness? That's literally being so broken hearted before God, that you pull your hair out. Ripping out your beard. You see it in the scriptures all the time. They fell on their faces and they pulled out their hair. That's what this is talking about. And behold, instead of weeping and mourning and baldness and wearing sackcloth, behold, what does the Lord say? Joy and gladness. And killing an oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating and drinking and... Finally, the expression, let us eat and drink... For tomorrow we die. In verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die. And those are hard words. Those are incredibly hard words. And quite honestly, it bothered me a lot. Why would God declare those hard words over this man who when he was first faced with all of this problem, got on his face before God and went in to the temple and said, Oh God! But then later declares, You forgot me. You turned towards your resources. You made your own plans you set up this great, glorious house to yourself. And I'm not going to forgive you. The words, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, are familiar to me, but not from Isaiah. You see, I've never really studied Isaiah very much. I just read it as I go through the Bible but I never really studied it. But where I see the eating and drinking for tomorrow we die came out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. It says, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, well then let's just eat and drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. See, there's no... And Paul's logic and his, his argument here in 1 Corinthians 15 He's saying, there is a resurrection. There is a hope of resurrection. And if there isn't, then it's futile. It's all worthless. We're we're living a lie. We might as well just eat and drink and have a great time, because tomorrow we're going to die, and there won't be any resurrection to hope for. But even that doesn't sound like something worthy of a condemnation from God. But if you look even further, you can go into chapter 12 of Luke. And you can read a parable that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had an incredible harvest. So much so that he had to tear down his old barns and build new ones. And they were full to overflowing. And it literally says, you've got enough to just lay by for years and years to come. You just need to relax and enjoy life. And it says in that parable, the Lord came to him that night and calls him a fool. Because tonight you're going to die. And verse 19 it says... And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for the many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And forgive me, I said the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I'm sorry, it's the parable of the rich man so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. When we are faced with horrible situations, overwhelming situations, the natural human in us experiences fight or flight. If it's overwhelming, either get rid of it and get away from it, or do what you can to fight. And Hezekiah, in this story, did that. I don't know at what point he did it, because we saw last week that he thought that there was going to be peace in his time. But some point or another, Shephnaf, Eliakim and all of Jerusalem fell away. All of them. It may be that this prophecy kind of is flipping around in time and that this, this prophecy about you're going to fall away will not actually be Hezekiah but it may be one of his sons. So that would line up more with what we read last week in verse 21. But however it played out whatever the end result is The crux of this whole story is when you are faced with horrible, overwhelming circumstances, where do you put your trust? In your resources? Do you make an inventory of all the stuff that you've got and you can now plan out how you're going to survive? Or do you get on your face before God and lay it out before Him and say, Oh God, I don't have the ability, I don't have the strength, I don't have the the smarts to be able to deal with all of this. I'll do what you tell me to do, I'll go where you tell me to go, I'll be what you want me to be, but I need you to guide me through every step of this. I mean, if you go back to Proverbs, the basic thing you teach children when they're little, 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 Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, in all your ways acknowledge Him, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. That's the message this morning that I truly believe God wanted me to hear, and I hope for some of you as well. Don't focus on your resources. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on God. He has the answer, He knows where the resources are. He can guide you and direct you in exactly the right way. And the end, the, 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 the way you make that happen is going back. Can you bring up that left? Oh, you don't have it. Never stop praying. No, no, it's too late. It's good. Never stop praying. First Thessalonians 5.17. Never stop praying. Always keep those lines of communication with God. Always. So that moment by moment, day by day, as you're faced with this stuff, you're not tempted to look to the resources. You're tempted to just go be to God. Never, never, never stop praying.